0: to the five games of a special series of the Games GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I am James Batchelor and every month I am joined by a special guest to discuss their career over the course of five games. Their first, their latest and three of their choice. The conversation not only covers the games themselves but also the ways that they demonstrate how the games industry has changed over the years. Uh, the series so far has primarily concentrated on their uh, development but we're going to be looking at talking at composers, PRs, artists, writers, journalists, publishers, marketers and more to talk about how the industry has evolved over the course of certain people's careers. So far, we have already spoken to uh, Velen Studios' Guha Bala, Team17's Debbie Bestwick, and Thomas was Alone developer, Mike Biffle. If you subscribe to the podcast and scroll back through the feed, you'll find those episodes, as well as another series we do, which is the Game Developers Playlist, where developers talk about one game that influenced their careers. Today on The Five Games Of, we are speaking to Mikhail Kataranan from Remedy Entertainment. Mikhail, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Uh, Thank you so much. Great to be here.
0: Um, For those who may or may not be familiar with your work, can we have a a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got into games?
1: Right. So um, I work today at Remedy Entertainment, and that was actually the studio where I started off as well. And uh, I guess my focus has mostly been on game design. I started as a gameplay designer, and that defined kind of my path through the game industry as well. Um, And worked on a bunch of uh, Remedy games, latest being control uh which i was the game director on basically overseeing the creative side leading the creative least group and the same thing with quantum break as well that was the previous game that we did and uh that's roughly who i am and what i do
0: nice and you've now just given away two of your five games that's fine
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that no 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 at
0: all not at all it's, it's, it's not like it's a big surprise it's fine <laughs> but um let's let's launch into it though with uh, with your first game First game is Max Payne 2, The Fall of Max Payne, released in 2003 for PC, Xbox, and PS2, developed by Remedy Entertainment and published by Rockstar Games. Um, Mikhail, tell us a little bit about your role on this game. How did you come to work on this project?
1: Um, Right, so um, I started Remedy uh, in 2001, and we were just just kind of... Wrapping up Max Payne One, or that was released already in the summer, and then there was still some work on the console version, and so on. And I worked as a gameplay designer. So basically, my job was to um, basically look at the levels, their layouts, and uh, essentially craft the gameplay moments within the experience, like how the combat setups worked and uh, any puzzles that existed and so on. Basically, crafting the experience that the player would go through. And that was my job on on Max Payne 2. And um, and at the time, uh, everything was kind of broken down into separate levels. I think there were like 20 level, 21 levels in total. And out of them, I think I looked at eight or nine different levels and it was a very different time it was like three of us uh gameplay designers that worked on the game at the time and uh looking at the team sizes and so on today yeah it, it was a very different kind of environment
0: well let's um, expand on that then like what was the industry like back then so setting the scene a little bit 2003 we were a couple of years away from uh the next generation which in that, in that case was the xbox 360 the ps3 uh we were still three years away from the wii and um, so we are kind of mid generation or certainly towards the late generation at this point. Um, in terms of consoles, like there was no mobile games, there was little to no dist- digital distribution because steam did not launch until September of that year, 2003, September, 2003 was mm-hmm. when steam launched. So download games hadn't fully taken off by this point. Um, so yeah, very different industry to be, to be developing in like kind of, um, I guess like, do you miss anything? Like what, what was good back then? What was great? What was what better now?
1: Well, um, it was interesting, like looking at Max Payne 1, uh, Remedy definitely saw itself and and still does in many ways as a a PC developer, right? But the sales of Max Payne 1 and PlayStation 2 were just staggering. Uh, and it, it really blew up. And I, I think that changed the mindset quite a bit, I think, within the studio that, hey, these consoles are kind of a big deal as well. And, and we should really kind of make sure that whatever games we do in the future, we, we invest and make sure that we produce high-quality SKUs as well on the console platforms and, and not PC only. So, so there was that kind of, I think, a little, little uh, kind of a shift in the in the thinking and the culture happening as we were working uh, on on Max Payne two already, and it was clear like you know there needs to be you know really good skews uh, from for for the consoles as well. And what was maybe I was kind of um, lucky to have my first game as a sequel in in many ways because. It was a very straightforward setup. like it was already a game that existed, and uh, I had worked on that game indirectly in different ways before, so it was something that was easy to jump into, so it was very familiar. everybody knew what we needed to do and and kind of game direction wise, it was straightforward and and in many ways, it allowed me to really kind of focus on on the kind of uh craftsmanship side, like you know learn to you know build encounters, iterate them and and so on, work with others, et cetera. Uh, instead of being in a kind of a, you know, complicated, creative uh, kind of environment where there's a lot of question marks, uncertainty and so on. There was none of that with Max Payne 2. It was very clear what we needed to do. And it's still probably the fastest game project that I've worked on. I think it lasts like 18 months uh, or 20 months, something like that. And then it was done, like boom. And <laughs> and compared to, to the kind of a climate where we are, you know, today that's extremely rare and i think it's the uh, only time also at remedy when when we worked on our on our sequel uh and after that we've been just basically creating new ips so it was an interesting moment to to join the studio and i think from uh looking at i think the biggest difference uh is the team composition like how much responsibility at the time a single person had in the team and and it, there are pros and cons to it like when you have a lot of responsibilities and and you need to understand a lot of different things to be able to work uh, there was a lot of things that you had to um, take into account and and if there are problems it's up to you up to you to figure them out and and so on so in many ways there was a sense of uh, efficiency and the team was small, not a lot of management over the team. Basically there was a little responsibility, but there was expectation that we did get work done. And, but it also kind of leads to, I think in like that when you, when you work so broadly, it, it also, you lose a sense of depth and, and also focus on, on, on the work that you do. As as mentioned, I think i worked on nine different levels out of 21. And, um, and that's a huge amount of different levels that you can jump into and kind of do what you can and move on to the next one and so on. So you get the more like a broad kind of touch upon all the work that you do.
0: Mm. It's interesting as well. As you mentioned, this is a very rare, if not only, Remedy sequel. Um, I guess that that's kind of been a constant in the industry since two thousand three. Is is that if a if a new IP takes off instantly, people expect sequels. Um, and by people, I mean both players and you know probably publishers and shareholders as well. Um, we'll kind of we'll, we'll probably touch on this like throughout the rest because there's a lot of games here in your collection that people want and expect a sequel to. So I guess how has it changed the expectation and whether the expectation for a sequel matches up with the reality of actually getting one? Like Max Payne took off um and was brilliant. I loved the original Max Payne. I absolutely it was one of my favorite games of that generation. Um like so a sequel seems obvious to to players, but like what does it kind of take behind the scenes? And then like nowadays, what does it take to kind of get a sequel green lit?
1: Mm. That that's a great question. I, I think have a lot of complicated, even conflicting thoughts about sequels overall. Um, I can see the sense from a business perspective that it gives you a lot of predictability with the product. Like everybody understands what it is. It it makes things simpler regarding marketing. It makes things simple regarding creative direction, execution, tool chains, and, and all of that. So creating a sequel in many ways can help in in kind of uh, uh, creating a sense of. Uh, predictability where everybody knows what's gonna happen next and, and so on. There's this immense value in that for a for a studio. And and it's got you know, a bit hard to even describe in, in what shapes and forms that value surfaces actually. Uh, so there is that and and, and I, I can recognize it. Uh, but then there's also this side of um, kind of a creativity. Like, you know, it also limits you in, in certain ways. When you start to work on a sequel, there are certain setups that you need to consider. There'll, there will be fan favorites. There will be characters that everybody loved and and so on. And, and you have to kind of look back and, and kind of uh, respect that as well. So there are limitations that you carry with it. And as, as a creative person, you usually want to approach a product with the intent of making it memorable and interesting for for whoever, that experiences it. And, and and usually that requires for you to change the status quo, right? Like you don't want things to be kind of just go through and everything's great and nothing you know, big happens. You want it to be drama and so on. And and sometimes in the sequel, there are sort of limitations that you have to abide to that might be tough. Then again, I think the concept of sequel, I think, can be uh, more complicated as well, looking at games like... Um, let's say GTA. I mean, they they every single time they pick an entirely different context, different part of the world, uh, different characters, and so on, and essentially find some kind of a new way into the you know the criminal underworld and and so on. So there are many ways to do a sequel, obviously, and and it, I think the big question is, what is your kind of. Uh, ip and brand that is at the basis of it like what would the sequel look like for a game like this and and when looking at max Payne, which is interesting like when we we're doing max Payne 2 we already had sold the ip uh to take two at the time rockstar and but there was this kind of a transition period like we're going to do this game still and after that, it's on, on Rockstar to kind of see what they want to do with the IP. So it was an interesting moment. It was like we knew that it's probably going to be the last time that we're going to work on Max Payne. And what was going to be after that is going to be something new and something different. And and, the, and when I mentioned before, like you're setting up a foundation with the game and, and I... Well, it's, it would be interesting, kind of, discuss with a lot of people about Max Payne and how it's actually seen today, because there hasn't been that many Max Payne games out, though, right? Which, which is almost worthy of a discussion of its own, probably. And and the 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 tough part when you look at Max Payne is that you already have a setup that is very strong, right? Like looking at Max Payne 1, it was a striking, impressive experience with the, uh, uh, you know, you have New York, you have Max Payne himself, and and you have the kind of uh, collision of the kind of a comic book style, and and then the kind of a film noir, and, and these interesting kind of uh, concepts collide in a, in a kind of uh, exciting way. And we, we followed up on that in the sequel, and and so on, and, and of course wanted to find a different take on it. And Max Payne 3 was actually done by Rockstar, but that's situated in a very different part of the world, and and immediately the feel of the whole game was was very different in in many ways. And and it's just a kind of an interesting example. And, and I'm not going to comment on whether it was good or bad, but it's an interesting example of like once you establish a strong game and you need to do a sequel to it, it will limit you and and if you choose to break those limits and say no we're going to take this into a different direction then there's going to be a reaction uh, on the fan base and ideally you you strike a balance where the direction you take is exciting and interesting enough so that you retain the old audience and find a new one right that's what you want to do Uh, you want to grow and evolve but then you know where is that fine line like what, what are the creative choices that you should and shouldn't do
0: yeah, it's interesting. Like, it, it surprised me that there wasn't another Max Payne until 2012. So nine years later, mm. um, and like you say, yeah, like it's one of those franchises where you do have to strike the balance. Like, if you just keep essentially remaking Max Payne one, mm. um, then it becomes older and stale. But if you take it too far, it doesn't feel like a Max Payne game. I have to confess, I never played Max Payne three because it didn't look like a Max Payne game to me. I would, I, I, it it seems too separate and too disassociated from the original and what I loved about the original, um, and I guess yeah, you're in danger of losing the original fan base with that sort of thing.
1: There you go. That's that's exactly what I think happened to a lot of people. Even I, uh, even though of course from a professional standpoint, uh, I, I did play it and 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 so on. But I, I was also thrown off because there was this. But maybe I'm. I, I was I was looking at myself as coming from a place of feeling like. You know, I I kind of know what Max Payne is sh- like should be about, and then when you play it, and it's like, hang on, what? And <laughs> and it, it's an interesting moment, and and so on. As a creative person, I I always love it when when you know creative people and studios and and directors try something new. So, that can be wrong, but you can clearly see that there was. A choice made there that uh was i'm sure controversial in in, in many ways and yes it, it it took a while until the max pain uh max pain 3 came out and yeah I, I do wonder if there there is ever going to be a max pain 4 and yeah how, how do you how do you take a franchise like that even i i can see it actually being creatively not trivial like what would max Payne 4 even be about like uh, my, my gut reaction would be almost like back to the roots type of a thing but you know well maybe we'll see something someday I don't know I have if, no it,
0: idea. If, it, if it comes back they'll reboot it it just it feels like one of those ones they'll just reset reboot and we'll start again and as you say Max Payne and the, uh, that whole franchise is a whole discussion on itself so let's move on to your second game and one that I imagine quite a few people listening have tuned mm. in specifically for Alan Wake was released on Xbox 360 in 2010, later on PC in 2012, developed by Remedy Entertainment and published by Microsoft. Uh, What was your role on this game then? How were you involved with Alan
1: Wake? Right, so uh, I have to start by saying that Alan Wake was a long project (laughs) and uh yes we have we had a saying uh at that time like early 2000s like you know when the game is done it's done like you know we we needed to take our time to make sure that we get the you know best possible experience built and i I think that that thinking um is kind of gone after we got alan wake done because it took so long and I, i think with alan wake um well, first off, uh, I want to say that it was such a long project that my role actually shifted during the project. Uh, I started off as a senior gameplay designer, basically in the same role as I was before in, in Max Payne 2. And then after uh, roughly two years, um, I, I kind of took the role of uh, lead game designer. So I oversaw the uh well the game design creation of the game looking at you know the flashlight gameplay uh the kind of core metrics of the world the whole safe haven system with the with the kind of lies, uh ai enemies the whole kind of system of how they worked like circling you and the range enemies, all of that stuff was basically on my plate and as an interesting trivia, uh, the, whole <laughs> the whole game design team was basically me. So yeah, it's, it's kind of funny thinking about it uh, today. But um, I was the only actual game designer in the house. It's just, again, uh, an interesting shift that has happened with how we look at team structure. Looking back, it feels insane. But that's what it was back in the day when we were working on, on um, Alan Wake. And um, and then there was a bunch of like you know gameplay designers that kind of focused on the scripting side and so on. But when you look at the kind of core combat mechanics and so on, it was very very kind of a simple structure. So that was my role in in Alan Wake. And uh, as said, it it was a long project and and famously, well I think it's relatively known that we started off by announcing that this is an open world game and. We definitely at the time felt like that was the direction that the world was heading towards. And and we can look at it today and say, yes, that that was correct. Like many of the biggest single player successes out there today are open world games. Um, So it felt like to us, after Max Payne, I think there was this feeling of like uh, we do want to continue creating. interesting uh, characters, interesting stories, compelling experience. We weren't locked down necessarily even on being an action game developer at the time, even though Max Payne was a huge success, I think mostly because of the action that we were <clears throat> able to create. Um, so we went into Alan Wake with, I think, the classic you know, second album problem, like, what next? Uh, but still feeling like we want don't want to kind of do what we did before. We want to do something new. We want to do something ambitious. Uh, we want to do something that is like us going into unknown waters. You know, we, we had created like two quite similar games before. Now we want to do something different. And, and that's how Alan Wake started and, and so on. But again, like looking back, I think the reality was that we were a relatively small team. We did want to do an open world game. But it became quite clear that during the first one or two years, we, we had massive problems in, in trying to kind of figure out, it, it was essentially a game direction problem. Like, how do the different elements of the game come together not just you know gameplay itself like do i shoot in this game or you know with the flashlight but also storytelling and and you know cinematics uh the how do we visualize the world and and so on all of these problems uh together made it very clear that you know there was some kind of a heart in that experience that was kind of missing Uh, That's like me looking back at that time. At the time, I I wasn't experienced enough to be able to kind of stand back and look at like, what are we actually doing? Uh, We focused a lot on kind of low-level mechanics and and very high-level stuff, but those things never really met in in a way that we felt was, you know, good. So the first two years was a lot about exploration. And part of the problem, I would say, was that... uh, we we made a good deal regarding Max Payne when we sold the IP. So there was uh, kind of a, a financial uh, safety for the studio, essentially creating an atmosphere where it felt okay, that, okay, we're going to spend one or two years just, you know, seeing what we could do and maybe not that and, and maybe not that and so on. And... And and I think it's an interesting example of how, when you take a certain degree of pressure away, it can also be a, a negative thing, where you you kind of lose a sense of focus and decision making regarding what's actually important, what isn't important. When when you have that kind of a sense of safety and there's no rush, then it doesn't push you uh, either production. Wise or, or creatively in, in, the, in the right way. And, and it's been a big lesson, I think, which I took uh, very personally, that I think pressure is good. You, you want to uphold to certain ideals. It doesn't matter, um, you know, what is the overall, uh, let's say, the kind of uh, financial situation around you. You have to kind of set goals for yourself that you adhere to and, and kind of uh, rely on. That's the only way you can actually be able to look at your work and, and make informed decisions and, and take steps forward. You need to kind of m- sometimes manufacture those uh, limitations around so, around you so that you can do that. Anyway, it, it was like there's a time period that I when I look back at Donald wake, there was like uh, there there are like two key time periods. There was this exploration where we basically asked, it, "What is the game that we're even doing?" Like quite honestly, that 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 was like the first period and. I think during 2007 or eight, um, there was this kind of a clear moment where we knew, and I I think, you know, the studio knew that we can't continue like this. We need to, we need to get focused and so on. And uh, essentially uh, had this kind of uh, uh, shift in how we approached the whole thing and and kind of... uh, essentially spent just months just focused on the kind of uh, core questions regarding what the game should be about and, and and we had this mindset of being ready to push any existing thoughts or you know ideas that were already table push those aside uh, ready to let them go like we don't ha- like hang on them like let's let's kind of leave that baggage behind and that allowed us to take those crucial steps where we were saying that the open world actually doesn't bring us anything meaningful at the end of the day when we look at the story that we want to tell, the, the light and darkness themes, and you know the, the kind of a horror feel that we wanted to find, we, we, and, and the, the psychological thriller like you remember like it, we, we kind of coined the term like psychological action thriller and and for that to work as an idea and overall direction of the experience that we wanted to create it was clear that open world actually is not helping in that in any shape or form and and the, the other problem with open world is that once you bring it in, it is something that comes with its own um, kind of a constellation of elements that are expected to be there so so it felt, it was actually very clear at that time that we, we should kind of leave that leave that out. Um, there was, I think, a moment where we were thinking of taking a more like a survival horror direction instead. And that I could have seen working in an open world setting, but it would have been a very different type of a game with a very different approach regarding characters and stories and and so on and uh, so a choice was made basically and and from that point on we started to build what was actually known what people see as Alan Wake and interestingly even though in total we spent a lot of time during that time period interestingly when you look at the actual production time that we spend on the game it wasn't that long it I, I think we basically got our shit together around early 2008 this is the game that we want to do and and then the game was out in 2010. So um, once once we kind of uh, picked the direction and it felt like we see a game direction in front of us, this is the game experience that we want to create. After that, it was, you know, a relatively straightforward uh, execution and getting it done.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. So, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> no, with went... me. No, 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 I'm sitting there learning, fascinating, it's like... Um... So I, I kind of want to talk first about then about the length of development cycle, and as you say, like the well, the overall length of development cycle, and as you say, like the you know the, the fact that it really was primarily developed in the last eight months, two years, like that. That sounds all too familiar to me. Like, so um, one of my favorite uh, games of all time is Thief Two, um, the old uh, IDOS uh, Looking Glass Studios, and I got really excited when this is a tangent, but I promise it's irrelevant. When Square Enix announced, or I just want to announce they were going to make a new a new Thief in 2009, and it didn't come out 2014, that mm. creates, like, that was... Uh, I've got to do my maths now. That's five years of expectations of, oh, my God, they've spent five years working on this. This is going to be amazing. And it wasn't. And you then later <laughs> read that it was made in 18 months and they had to keep going back to the drawing board. It's like, ah, that makes sense. Mm. Alan Wake, I don't think, suffers as much from that because I don't think it was quite as obvious, like how, how, I know you say, as you say, like it had originally been developed as an open world, but like, okay, maybe I phrase it this way. Like, how do you, when you've got such a long development cycle, how do you manage expectations or how do you, how do you kind of gauge expectations from it from inside? Cause I guess you're not marketing or PR. Um, how do you gauge expectations from what you're trying to build versus what you eventually will put out?
1: Um, Right. Uh, do you mean internally or externally, like towards the public, or
0: a little, a little of both? I know you're yeah. not. Certainly, at the time, you weren't as connected with the you know the, no. the public-facing stuff. But like, kind of in, internally, like, what's it like? Like knowing you're trying to work for five years on you know on this, and you're trying to take your time. As you say, you had this this great deal with um Microsoft where it gave you that freedom to experiment and take mm. time. And we'll come back mm. to that in a minute as well. Um, so yeah like internally but knowing that everything that gets put out there that's just and the length of time you're taking that just builds up the expectations for from from other people
1: yeah it's it's uh there's no i I think the big well we learned a bunch of big lessons there and um well (laughs) well the the simple lesson that is obvious but at the time you know it, it was different um you shouldn't announce the game before you know exactly what you're doing. I think is is the the big number one uh, lesson and and which which we have taken to heart after after Alan Wake. Um, we were too eager, I think, and and a part of it was, honestly, we didn't have a publisher when we first announced that we we're doing Alan Wake. people actually don't remember that. When we came out and said, "Here's Alan Wake, it, it, it was a pretty bold move, honestly. We basically showed a prototype of the game before we even had a publisher. The whole point of that was to actually get publishers excited about it. And this is, you know, a game that we are now creating. Want to do this open world thing and so on. And it turned out to be effective. It was very helpful. Uh, but that's how how it how it got started. And regarding managing expectations, it definitely um, was. Complicated uh, because I, we we were kind of trapped by what we initially said, and and changing that rhetoric and narrative was a very kind of a, a delicate thing. Like, how do you communicate that? How how do you make sure that you don't say too much uh, so that people? Uh, are able to see the good things that we're doing the, the valuable things that we're doing and and not be reacting in a way where like oh no it's not open world now i'm not interested anymore like we were really nervous about that kind of a reaction and and i i do think that a lot of people did react like that so there was there was really kind of a no no choice there like we already i think alienated a bunch of people by how we handled that communication and uh and so managing that expectation was one and then also there is that thing where you do get concerned when you realize that we've been doing this game for a while and people are definitely expecting like a massive (laughs) big game and 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 but the reality of it is that a lot of that time went into us exploring, uh, testing different things out. And I do have to say, though, that you know, the two years that we kind of spent towards the end getting it done, I, I do have to say that a lot of what made that possible was that we already had, essentially, an open world engine up and running. We had a world... That was created to a degree. There were like buildings, there were forests, and we had this kind of a biotype type of solution that allowed you to create really quickly vast areas of like forests and so on. Uh, so we had a lot of technology that was already built that really really helped us in, in kind of uh, uh, get a fast start with with building experience for real once once we kind of had that big moment during 2008 uh and and we had powerful tools that allowed us to do that so so that helped but still you know at the end of the day uh the game that people thought was going to come out and i think there were still people reacting when it was released that oh i thought this was an open world game it stuck so kind of uh much that, that kind of communication from early on and so on. So, I, I don't think we, I think it was one of those cases where it's, I think it's a, it's a game that I'm extremely proud of that we ended up doing and, and very happy to have been part of creating it. Uh, but it's also, I think, a lot of uh, marketing and product management lessons that we also got through that. Mm.
0: I, find, I, I do find the fact that it was an open world. Um, or it was originally going to be an open world. Interesting. Cause as you say, like open worlds are now like just quite dominant in the, certainly in the AAA space, like almost everything is an open world now. Mm-hmm. Um, like and we we have just shifted that way. It absolutely makes sense that Alan Wake wasn't, cause I, you, like I say, you were going for this psychological thriller. Um, almost kind of a horror kind of a, a style and you know if it's an open world you know most players can just run very fast to the other side of the map and that that makes things less scary um, whereas you know I remember playing Alan Wake and it feeling quite claustrophobic like I have to get through this yeah. otherwise then you yeah, know that's it that's it I'm dead um why do you think that, uh, open worlds weren't as popular back then or certainly weren't as prominent they were there obviously I mean we've had um open worlds along the lines of of what we've what we what we play now you know as far back as certainly gta 3 in two thousand mm-hmm. two thousand one, 2001 um I, perhaps even things like um o- zelda ocarina of time was like a 3d open world like you know that sort of thing um but they weren't as prevalent or certainly like the formula wasn't as as defined as it is now like why do you think it took so long or so because it feels like it's this generation, this console generation where open worlds have really kind of come into their own. Why do you think it's taken that long?
1: I think it's uh, like when you look at GTA and, and look at honestly at those games that existed at the time, um, there is... Sorry, this is just my kind of quick hot take uh, on it, um, that they tended to be kind of a wacky and over the top and, and so on. There was a lot of kind of... Uh, uh, nuance and, and complexity missing there. there. It was like the sandbox that you can have fun in, and, and through that, there's this kind of a dissonance that you kind of create easily with the rest of the game. Even you were looking at GTA 3, there was like this kind of uh, deep, you know, uh, cr- like crime drama that you kind of went through. And and then you might kind of leave that really kind of a gripping com- complex uh, cinematic and then kind of... Uh, Run into a car and then drive over a bunch of you know civilians and 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 go crazy. So you had that dissonance that always existed because you had to accept that there's no control that you have upon the player in the in the open world, and 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 that was what made them fun, right? Like I, I remember there were like games like I, Just Cause One was also kind of a similar vein that there was this. Uh, it was a relatively empty big world and and so on, but there was this kind of physics layer of fun that you could have so it was like this sandbox, this toy box that you had and 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 you had to create the open world with that kind of thinking that that's what they bring nowadays. When you look at the open world games that exist, they are far more nuanced and, and kind of built with very strong cohesion uh, regarding what is the kind of tone of the world itself. And that was ultimately the problem that I think we struggled with as well in in, in Wake that it that it that was the easy way to create those experiences at the time. And to me, that was maybe the biggest question mark and of course there are like technological things that you have to just get right regarding streaming uh your kind of art pipelines and how your environment artists work and and thus wasn't by no means a small feat by by rockstar early 2000s that they were able to figure out how to produce a game like that so i think also many studios were still kind of learning and understanding like well how do we even create these type of experience, so I think that was also happening. Besides the uh, the kind of a creative uh, dissonance that easily existed within those games.
0: And um, one last talking point I want to kind of uh, centre around Alan Wake before we move on, because I, I, we could probably fill an entire episode just on this game. <laughs> yeah. Um, I found it interesting that the you guys went with, you know, from open world to this kind of episodic structure. Um, mm-hmm. and it, I remember, like, you know, like, the presentation is very much like kind of uh, TV show. Uh, that's something that you guys have experimented on um, a lot. We'll talk a lot more about that with a, a fairly obvious later title in the show. Um, but I, I find the episodic model interesting because I think 2010. This was back when, like, the, the episodic model was first starting to. Uh, emerge or certainly first up certain to become prominent. I seem to remember uh, the Orange Box and like Half-Life Episode 1 and 2. Those were 2010 or certainly that era. Telltale by that point, I think it started like it's, um, it's point-and-click adventures. And here we are kind of 10 years on, and Epic started gaming hasn't quite taken off as, as much as I expected. And the episodic games you get tend to be of a very, very similar formula. They tend to be your narrative-driven... Almost passive. That's that's. I'm generalising here, but like Mm -hmm. almost passive experience. In in that, like you know, things like your telltale games, you know, your Game of Thrones, your Walking Dead, your um, Tales of Monkey Island, your Tell Me Why's, your Life is Strange's. uh, Those those episodic games where a a large part of is essentially you're spending an hour or two enjoying, absorbing a story, making choices here and there, maybe solving a puzzle or two, walking around. But in terms of action, they're very low on what. You, you know, they 're very low on on action in general. The only mm. exception to that is Hitman, the two thousand and sixteen reboot, which was episodic, and it was it gave you like a sandbox per month um, you know, with different missions and so forth mm. you know, like with different objectives and that still didn 't take off to the point where Hitman Two obviously became just a standard full release, and I believe again the same way with Hitman three. Yours would... Alan Wake wasn't quite the same. It it was episodic, but it was still a full price game. But for me, it worked. I I could play... I could sit and play, right, I'm going to do a quick episode of Alan Wake, and then I'm going to go to bed or something or read a book. And he he broke it up into nice chunks. And I particularly liked the the recap feature, which I kind of... I really, really, really want more games to do that, where if I haven't played in... You know ages it does a little you know kind of a previously on and then because you gives you the key beats from the cutscenes, and then here you go right you're straight back in now you know what what you what's been happening because not everyone plays games like you know binges them in, a, in the course of a week do they like some of us spread it out over time um i am rambling so i will get back to you and let, let you talk again in a minute i'm just intrigued as your take as to why the episodic structure hasn't really taken off in games and why it's been why it's been hard to get action games or mm. more active games to work in that episodic model
1: right, I definitely have a, a take on that, but <clears throat> I, I do want to mention regarding uh, Alan Wake. I, I think choosing the episodic style uh, was first and foremost a stylistic choice. It, it was a creative choice so that we you had this feeling it was more about the feeling that you would have as, as the player of what is the kind of cadence of this experience and, and having a cliffhanger moment and, and and making it land with the same effectiveness that you get in an excellent TV drama. So it was a tool for us to, to create a more gripping experience, basically. So it, it wasn't necessarily a choice as in us thinking necessarily that, we could release this as uh separate pieces and bits and so on i that wasn't really part of the thing at all it was more to kind of utilize the aesthetics of the tv show mm. to uh to kind of strengthen the uh storytelling side and and i i agree it was always like when we uh floated into those uh licensed songs towards the end like one of the most amazing moments that I I've kind of had in, in a game was like when I first time saw that landing as I was testing and playing the game, I, I was like, man, this is this is something interesting. This is unique. This is different. And and so on. So I remember very clearly at the time how how happy I was about that anyway moving on to the episodic stuff okay I these are my personal opinions um, <laughs> on the, on the matter um, I to me it's pretty obvious why why episodic doesn't quite work in games and and my my answer is, is is a bit vague but maybe maybe you kind of get a hold of can get a hold of what I mean by this I, I think there's a misconception sometimes uh, how people think games are actually consumed by people that play them. Uh, I I think it's in many ways a a mistake. And again, this is my opinion. I think it's a mistake to think that games should uh, kind of be looked at like passive entertainment, like TV shows, uh, and, and, and expect that people are interested or excited in any shape or form to experience games in that kind of a fashion i think games are about they are immersive experiences that you feel like you are part of something like you jump into this world and, and you are there you're doing things it's up to you to figure things out and, and get things done and if the game is not doing that then it's just a an interactive storytelling thing then then we get this interesting discussion, of course, like what is a game or, or what is just a you know uh, a more complicated way of telling a story and, and i 'm not going to go into that discussion but but on a high level, to me, personally, the best games are games where that they challenge you in interesting ways and, and you want to be a part of it, and you want to you want to make an impact upon the world that you feel like you have that volition to do it and and when you think of a like a successful game at those terms, it is, I think, uh, problematic to think of that type of an experience as packages of content. Like, okay, now you did this bit. And it, it kind of that thinking kind of breaks that sense of immersion and feeling that you had as a player as me being, being part of this world. And I, I think it kind of fundamentally breaks that feeling and image of what you expected to be like one big wondrous thing that you can jump into and be a part of and then kind of jump out when you feel like it. And and I think that is the problem. And when you look at games that try to kind of break it down into um, an episodic format where like, okay, here's just a piece of the game, and, and you immediately feel, I think emotionally as a player, that okay, I'm jumping into it, but it's not the whole thing. So I'm I'm kind of missing out on something and you already hesitate the first moment, I think a bit. And w- once you're done, like, you know, I I love jumping into games and, and spending hours within them. And I always like, I, I would almost feel like, well, I don't want to even start this if I'm not able to, you know, continuous I see fit and you know you know get the whole experience and so on. So I think that hesitation will start to happen as well. So I think many would have a mindset of I'm gonna just wait until all the episodes are done and then maybe I'll buy the whole packet. But then it kind of undermines the whole point of like why was it episodic in the first place? And that's where I think the problem lies that it's not, I think Uh, an appealing proposition, really, and I think the nature of episodic breaks that uh, illusion of having uh, uh, this kind of a larger uh, kind of a world that you can jump into and so on. It kind of breaks that thinking a bit, and I think it inherently undermines uh, the whole thing towards consumers.
0: Nice. Uh, you have now just shattered my long-running interest in Episodic Games, because you're absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. No, not at all. Um, no, that, that, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, uh, we have spent a long time on Alan Wake, and as much as I'd love to continue talking about this game and, and just the, the industry context around it, we really do have to move on, because we've got three other games to go. Here mm-hmm. is your third game. Battlefield 4, released in 2013 for PC, PS3, Xbox 360, Xbox One and PS4, developed by EA Dice, published by EA. And how on earth did you end up at EA Dice? <laughs> uh,
1: it was, um, so basically uh, after uh, working nine years at Remedy and after being done with, with Alan Wake, uh, I, did, I did continue after our as a project lead on the on the DLCs and actually very proud of them. I think we did cool stuff regarding the dark place that I'm I'm really happy that we managed to pull off. Um, I did feel like uh, me as a kind of a creative person and, and, and I, I wanted to kind of learn more and see different types of games and so on, and uh, not just single player, but more complex products and so on. Uh, so I was eager to to see uh, other things. So I actually, left Remedy after nine years. Um, I, I was so I, I went to Sweden. I was actually at Avalon Studios for a while as well, but then moved on to uh, Dice to to work on Bellafield 4, and and it was a huge learning experience. I think in many ways regarding uh, kind of what how different I think the studios can be compared to each other right regarding culture uh production way of thinking you know uh how how people even uh overall uh kind of uh choose what to care about and what not to care about and so on like there's there's a huge differences at the time and i think still today in in what is considered as a culture in in the studio and if there are game developers out there that are listening and only being like in one studio, well, don't leave because of this, but I'm gonna say that one of the best things you can do is to work in in different studios just because you get very different perspective uh, immediately upon uh, what are the different ways to create games and, and, and different experiences. Anyway, that, that kind of a choice that I did at, at the time to, to leave Remedy led me to to Dice. And, and, and being part of uh, a studio and a publisher like EA was definitely very different compared to Remedy. Remedy uh, is an independent studio at the end of the day. And it's starting to be a kind of a rare thing out in the world. And uh, it was really interesting to to work on balafield four uh, so there was, was the uh, lead designer uh and on the single player side so basically the team was uh broken down into four different parts so there's the single player production side and then this multiplayer and then there's like a central game group that basically defines here all the weapons that exist within this game and and so on and and kind of looking at you know the core mechanics and 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 so on like what is the first punch shooting experience supposed to be et cetera. And then there's the technology group uh uh, Frostbite, uh, which which kind of clearly became a a, a more larger thing, serving EA as, as a whole, and and so on in a, in a wider way uh, from there on. Um, but yeah, I mean that I I made that choice. I wanted to see other studios out there. I wanted to see different other types of games as well. I wanted to learn. I wanted to see. You know, I would never. I don't. You know, looking at Remedy, it, it was hard to see Remedy ever doing a, a military first-person shooter, for instance. After all, wake. I just that just wouldn't happen. Um, and uh, and I felt like you know now is a good time to see what else is out there. So yeah, that's the, the kind of a vague <laughs> reason why that happened.
0: Nice. Um, three things I kind of want to uh, dive into here. One, uh, the fact that you were on the campaign, specifically on the campaign, I'd, I'd like to kind of explore the, maybe not in 2013, but certainly prior to that kind of, and you know, a lot prior to that, single player was generally like the bulk of the game, certainly where a bulk of the, uh, the resources and development time would go. And then the multiplayer was not kind of tacked on, you know, mm. bit like, but it was an additional thing that kind of gave you replay value. Fast forward to today and for some, some considerable time, like several years, like multiplayer has been the driving factor. Um, just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on like the, the balance nowadays between how much development time and how much um, focus is put on a campaign versus a multiplayer compared to, you know, nearly 10 years ago.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It was at the time when EA, I think, was... Um, transitioning their thinking uh, quite widely regarding how how they're looking at single player. Um, when, when you look at similar games, single player serves the kind of point of creating uh, establishing a world that is um, it's a bit more sticky. Like w- what multiplayer is really, you know, having a hard time doing is is like bring a sense of character personality. Uh, stakes like what is happening, and and making those things really land in a in a powerful way, and on multiplayer side uh, on on battlefield, definitely struggled struggle to to kind of establish that, and and so in in a in a perfect world, what you get is that you get that kind of a single player side establishing that drama, that that kind of a uh, the context of what you're doing and why, and and making sure that the player gets immersed in that emotion that exists within the within the experience that we created. And as you kind of move on to the multiplayer side, some of that emotion, that, that feeling of what is this thing, what is happening and why uh, kind of uh, stays with you and, and ideally amplifies the multiplayer experience and so on. Of course, until you get killed and somebody comes and teabags you, of course. So you know, <laughs> so there, there's a, there's a little moment where maybe that is possible that you feel like immersed in that experience. Um, so it's it's an interesting balancing act, and I think at the time in at, at EA, and I I don't know exactly what was the kind of strategic thinking, but there was definitely, I think, a look at single play experiences as how important are they because. When, when you look at the statistics, when you look at people playing the game, single player, not everybody even plays single player, like uh, and uh, many people just jumped right into multiplayer because that's the game really, and the single player is just there on the side, and you can go and play through it if you want, but you know not necessary. And EA, I, I think, was at the time also looking at that and asking the question like, well, how important is a play and then I think they kind of went on and they kind of tried different takes on it and so on into different products and, and so on but you could feel that definitely I, I think a bit uh, during Battlefield 4 as well uh, Personally, I think there is something magical about the single play experience that is hard to hard to kind of uh, reach. In, in, a, in a multiplayer environment and so on. Sure, if you kind of build that context tightly enough, anything is possible on the multiplayer side as well. So I don't think it's, it's a technological choice, but when you bring a social element to things, things get easily more complicated and so on. On single-player side, you can have stealth missions where you take over a fortress of Nazis and, and kind of a, a staying in the shadows and so on, and which, which just is... Really, really hard to pull off in a multiplayer, so you can have unique experiences there that kind of gives you that sense of feeling that that you know what the context is and what is happening uh, but But when you look at retention and you look like at why people actually buy the game and and it and 's true like multiplayer is the thing the multiplayer is the thing that makes people return to their game over and over again and uh, there is there is a connection when you look at retention. And and people buying games, um, retention has a huge role to play in that. Uh, and people tend to buy games where there's a sense of value proposition that they feel like th- this game has elements that you know will provide me with a sense of entertainment for well, technically infinity uh, and so on. As it is with Battlefield, for instance, like you can keep playing the multiplayer for as long as you want, and. And it's, it's tough to, to kind of uh, compete with that with the pure single-player game. And I'm sure it can be done, but, but with multiplayer, there's something special about the social side and so on that creates a really strong side of retention and, and so on. So it easily becomes the, the kind of a driving thing for the product and so on, which is very understandable, and, um, and, I, and I get it from, from, uh, kind of, uh, from a business perspective as well
0: it's interesting like a military shooter is it has to be said is not is not my genre of choice um but i do find that 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 ongoing balance between um single player and, and multiplayer fascinating like i know they've they've tried to experiment on both you know activision and ea side obviously black ops 4 i believe was the one that didn't come with a, a campaign at all uh, the first star wars battlefront from the new ea line that didn't have a, a campaign and even the battlefront two campaign um, the the Wars battlefront two campaign essentially was a very long tutorial for the multiplayer That's right. like it it makes perfect business sense um but, you know, it, it's it's funny it, I, it's funny you mentioned the teabagging because that kind of was my second point like the the design sense like between when you're working on a campaign and the campaign for these sort of games tend to be very dramatic, very Hollywood, very you know, high-octane, massive set pieces, very high stakes, a lot of tension. The, you know, we're saving the world. We're you know, one-man armies. We're out to free the people. like, like proper. There's a lot of tension and drama and, and seriousness there. It's all taken very, very seriously. And then you switch over to the multiplayer, and it's like, hey, you've got five headshots in a row. Have a nuclear bomb. And right. it's just, it, there's a real disconnect there. And I don't know if there's ever a way around that. I mean, I don't know if you could, like, I don't know how well people would respond to making, say, like, you know, the Call of Duty or Battlefield multiplayer, like, essentially, you know, a large co-op mode or something. Like, I guess, like, just when you're working on the campaign, like, does that, is that something you think about, that disconnect with, with multiplayer? Like, does that make what you're doing seem... I, it feels it must feel like the projects are going off in two very very different directions.
1: For sure, yeah. I that that was just something that I chose to think that I um, when when working on it at the time, I I didn't want. I felt like at the time that it would be the wrong move to try to somehow um, replicate or or try to change the single player experience into something that would somehow be uh, more aligned with the events that are happening on the multiplayer side. And I, I felt like, no, that's the kind of worst thing that we could do because then we're just kind of doing a cheap version of the multiplayer again, and we're not tapping into that, those possibilities of you know drama and excitement that w- would be impossible for you to experience on the multiplayer side. So I felt like at the time that, no, what we want to do is create something... Unique that ideally complements the the multiplayer experience as well, and and, and together forms a package that is you know works in, in a kind of cohesive way. Even though there is dissonance, definitely there's dissonance in there. Um, so it it was like uh, a clear choice, and and I was very adamant about it. That let's let's kind of. Uh, well, let's not try to replicate, let's say, AI behavior that is close to what you would expect in, the, in a multiplayer game, like more like a bot-like thing. Like, no, I want, it to be, um, I want it to be human drama with AI. They can make mistakes. They get scared. You'd never see anybody scared in a, in a multiplayer game, right? Like, they just stand there and shoot at you until they die or you die. But in, in the single player side, we could have people like when you throw a grenade or when you rush and flank you know the, the covers and so on, that there's an enemy that is kind of shocked and, and kind of uh, stumbles backwards and, and kind of turns around and tries to jump or run away to a nearby cover and hide from there. And I, I was really clear, like, these are the things you will never ever see on the multiplayer side. And that's exactly why we should have them here on the single player side. And I'm very proud of what we were able to actually pull off regarding AI, enemy behavior, uh, the different kind of setups that we had in combat and so on. There's actually a lot of nuance and complexity in those moments that I think many people even realized. Um, so uh, I, I was really hammering on that at the time and, and felt like that was crucial. And and yeah, you can ask at the end of the day that, OK, you have that, and then you have that kind of uh, uh, like almost like the opposite experience when you go to the multiplayer side and and does that work together and that's that's for for i think the players and consumers to answer whether that works or not and uh but I, I to me it felt like a clear goal to pursue and i think there are ways to do uh you know pvp pve experiences uh that has a strong kind of a story and so on i, I think the discussion often when when we talk about multiplayer it kind of becomes like that it's somehow an exclusion of story, it's somehow an exclusion of immersion, and so on. But then looking at games like Destiny, for instance, that it incorporates, I think, in a wonderful way, really complicated and epic storylines in a setting that is a shared world shooter, basically that you experience together with your friends. But still, I do feel like I, I get the feeling that there's this unique, interesting world that I can explore, find out. You know, there's lore. Uh, there are dramatic. Uh, events. There are solo missions as well, where you kind of go at things alone from time to time, and and it never feels off uh, in its kind of a setting and and so on. And I think it's it's kind of a well, I, I don't want to say underappreciated, it's a game that does very well, but again, I think they managed to find that balance, that they have, I think, a single-player-like environment and the and kind of experience that we would expect to have in a single-player game, but managed to encapsulate, like, incorporate those into a setting that is essentially a very social and shared experience.
0: Nice, uh, last kind of point I want to talk on this because again Alan Wake took up a chunk of our time <laughs> um, was uh, the fact that this was Battlefield 4 was a launch title on Xbox one and PS four so this was a launch title on the current generation of consoles now um, we'll go a little bit more into the next generation um, by, by the time this episode comes out the new current generation um, with your last title uh, in a bit but i 'm just interested in like kind of the your thoughts on like what the the hype around the console transition mm. was like, I remember, I remember seeing the screenshots and the videos for battlefield four and like, it looked stunning and some of the campaign stuff looked stunning. And it was all very kind of, it wasn't like as, as a significant a graphical leap from say, you know, PlayStation one to PlayStation two, for example. But it was, it was like, it was much more clever use of lighting. It just all looked a lot more kind of realistic. Like, um, and and yeah and, and you know worlds were getting bigger like i kind of your thoughts on like what the what the hype was around new consoles back mm. then compared to what there is as we approach Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 uh,
1: yeah i mean uh, people forget Battlefield 4 actually was released on PS3 as well and mm. and it was it was crazy to make the game work both on you know it had to support what six different SKUs at the same time it was you know the next gen consoles at the time and the old generation and pc as well and well that's yeah that's five five different SKUs. and and it, it, it was a huge effort and a lot of like last minute optimizations i had like situation where on the single play campaign and and kind of wanting to make it work on all different platforms and unifying it. We had literal, literally kind of looked at like a few weeks before release uh, at different levels and deleting like certain buildings just so that we could actually make it run on, on PS3 as well. So there was, so, and, and that to me, and that's normal, like, you know, uh, kind of a balancing that you need to do as, as a part of any kind of a project, like making the performance uh, work and, and, Considering that and, and, and looking back, it makes it even uh, kind of a bigger achievement, I think, how good the game really looked at the end of the day. And I, I think it's a uh, testament to all the kind of uh, powerful, creative people who worked on it. Uh, top, top talent. Like Dices was and is full of extremely talented individuals who know how to create that magic of you know, it looking really, really good. But then what's actually happening on the hood can be something very simple. As you said, like, you know, certain choices with lighting, uh, certain choices with how we animate the environment and so on. I still remember us creating that initial 17-minute demo fishing in Baku, and there's that kind of one moment where you come upon a hill and you look down and you have this kind of a rough kind of a field in front of you with you know concrete buildings and so on you see these massive tops colorful like blue and orange tops and this kind of a exquisite big uh, kind of more expensive buildings on the side and so on and, and the birds in the sky and so and and it was like really big moment and and I, I kind of kept looking at it, so like, how the hell are we pulling this off, <laughs> and so on. So it was visually a very very impressive game, and 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 still kind of astounded, uh of, like of of what we pulled off. Um, then moving on to next gen, I, I think it's it's. Um, Unfortunately, the transitioning period is always tough because, as mentioned, we had to make it work on PS3 as well. And with, with the new generation consoles, you always have that kind of a moment where need to learn the kind of a new ways of developing the games, new, new kind of uh, technical requirements, like, let's say, achievements. Like, what are achievements and how do they work? How do we incorporate the design of those within the game that we have? And so on. And there might be a different solution on the previous-gen version, even though it's from the same platform owner and so on. So there was a lot of, like, there's this layer of uh, kind of a complexity regarding uh, you know performance and and utilizing the, the platform features as, as well as you can and so on then you have a lot of them so it's always like a problematic time for a game developer when the transition is is happening um, and and there, because there's so much work to do and and you need to make sure that it is at the end of the day like a balanced experience on all platforms so uh, and I did work at the time, like uh, looking into things like. Um, it feels me like Xbox had that sensor Kinect, yes Kinect, and and we were looking at things like uh, Kinect being able to detect whether you uh kind of a lean, so that we could do lean around corners, for instance, and so on. Uh, we looked at second screen. I remember at the time, like that you could have. Uh, like a map in front of you, basically on the experience. Like you can see, as you play the game, you can have a second screen in front of you and see exactly where you are on the battlefield, and then just focus on the main screen in front of you, and so on. Uh, so these these were like examples of the the new cool features that the new generation will would bring. Um, but at the end of the day, um, kind of uh, trying to balance those with with everything else that we were doing, it was it was a tricky. Tricky balancing act, and and it was very important to us that these things don't end up being like uh, gimmicks that they're kind of there but don't really make a difference in the experience. But it's uh, so so there were these type of challenges as well, and and uh, kind of uh, asking questions like does this really make a difference or not, and so on. That um, well, it was it was a tricky environment to navigate through. Let's mm-hmm. say it like that.
0: And lo and behold, both Connect and a uh, Smart Glass, I believe, was Microsoft's uh, real big push for second screen uh, companion apps. Like both Connect and Smart Glass have uh, just not taken off. Like here we are at the end of the generation, and, and did they last beyond the first couple of years? I don't believe they did. Um, yep, that's certainly Connect, Connect managed a few years, but Smart Glass, it's a shame. I, 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 I quite liked the idea of Smart Glass. I like the idea of companion apps. that's a completely different discussion. Um, so we're going to move on to your fourth game. This one is a personal favorite of mine quantum break released in 2016 for xbox one and pc developed by remedy entertainment published by microsoft um you're back at remedy what happened <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah uh so well i mean one of the things that happened as i visited these other studios looked into you know different cultures and so on it it made me through that time have this immense sense of respect towards remedy you you kind of uh, it's it's one of those things where you kind of realize it after you've kind of been and doing other things. And, and it doesn't mean that necessarily other studios are necessarily like uh, doing things in a worse way and so on. It's just different choices and different ways of looking at things and like, you know, what is the role of narrative and and, and what are the techniques that exist to us as, you know, storytellers and, and so on. And and turns out Remedy has established, you know, True, Alan Wake, which was a story about the writer, and so on. like, how do we tell the story was a huge question that we wanted to have an answer to uh, at Remedy, and so on. And and turns out, Remedy is kind of unique in that that you know how to how to have that right culture, the right technology, and so on to to facilitate these things. And and these are not normal things that you would expect at every studio. Uh, anyway that wasn 't the only part of the story. Basically, I was done with Battlefield Four, and at the time we had started to talk about what became Battlefield one uh, and and so on uh, and basically what well, what happened was that Sam Lake basically <laughs> gave me a call and 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 we chatted and and discussed and so on and uh, and they were working on this game called Quantum Break. And they've been at it already at that point. I think two or three years on it, um, and uh, basically asking that, hey, would I be interested in coming back um, uh, and and kind of uh, take a role as as a director? And and this was my kind of uh, first time uh, taking a job as a, as a game director uh, in Belief Four. I was the uh, the lead designer and so on. So it was an interesting new challenge that you know got me excited. Um, so chose to return uh, to, to Remedy and, um, and yeah, Quantum Break looked cool. Um, it, in many ways, to me, when I saw it and, and saw the kind of a first uh, visual ideas and, and gameplay examples and, and so on, it, it demonstrated to me, um, it showed me a game which I think was Peak Remedy. In, in many ways, regarding its you know ambition storytelling attitude regarding characters uh game structure and and so on there was a lot of i'll be honest there was a lot of um let's say rough elements to it, unfinished ideas, things that didn't quite click into place. play, but that was okay like you know games it's it's you know when they go through their early development they're filled with these type of things and so on and and part of my job would be to look into all of that and and see you know, how can we make the pieces fit and, and help in in kind of defining that that direction. And uh yeah, this was in 2014 and uh and return to Remedy. It was strange <laughs> to be back. Uh roughly four years had, had passed since since I kind of uh, left Remedy and so. On. And um yeah it, it was interesting. And I, I did have uh, And of course, I I didn't, you know, part of me left Remedy and well, I did leave Remedy partially because I felt like I wanted to kind of look towards a direction within games that um, serve a sense of uh, agency for the player, sense of volition where... You feel like you're in the driving seat. That it's a world that you get to explore that is meaty and interesting, and I I can kind of choose my path through it. And it feels like this place where I just want to spend time in, and so on. Not just a a linear story that you go through and then you're done with the game. And I know we're going to get soon to the game that that kind of uh, started to establish these ideals that I had at the time. But first things first. Like let's let's kind of get quantum break done, and and so on. And Quantum was in a interesting state it's um, it's a new i p uh, but it actually wasn't owned by remedy. It was owned by Microsoft, which immediately uh was an interesting setup uh, if you will uh because there's always this you know publisher studio relationship in these situations and and who how how the kind of creative process works, who 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 really makes the calls and so on. There are always these kind of uh, intricate elements that, of course, you know comes like, you know, you start to ask these questions like how is this going to work and what can we do? And and so on. And you know, where where is that balance and so on. Um but but was excited to return and I, I could see uh an experience to be had within Quant Break that was interesting, and I think quite different compared to many other games and, and you know other experiences out there and yes there was the the kind of a, the tv show side uh that I, I felt like of course remedy needs to do a game where there's going to be a tv show in. like looking back at that awake and then we talked about the episodic thinking and taking this kind of a stylistic cues from tv shows and so on so it was it, it felt like a, a natural path for remedy in many ways so yeah, I I, 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 it felt like a cool game to to return to.
0: So it, it's certainly my favorite uh, remedy. It's certainly my favorite remedy game for for several reasons. Like some of what you said there, like it, it was kind of the peak of that that explosion of the the balance between a game and a kind of a tv presentation the fact that it had this kind of tv companion show um mm. i know that kind of got scaled back i remember it was originally i think it was going to be six episodes and it got scaled back to four um but still like just like you know the idea that if i have four points during the game you then see from the antagonist's point of view mm. as a full full tv production um and Oh, you know, it, reading up later of like the subtle little differences—a base of like what you did in the mission beforehand, or what mm. you discovered or learned in the mission beforehand—dictates. Um, so the, the one example I remember is like I think I, I watched one where a security guard heads home, and if you found that a a security guard heads home and finds his wife, if you in the mission beforehand as the you know as the main character of the actual. Game. If you found uh, think of something on his email or his phone or something that that said he suspected his wife was having an affair, lo and behold, in the team episode you then saw that scene where actually he gets home, he's he and he, was, he finds that the wife is having an affair, and it was amazing because like there was all these changes that were so so subtle that when you're when you're watching the episode, mm. it's not obvious that ah, there's meant to be something, there's something missing here, or ah, they've clearly skewed into oh this. Is what... It was so right. subtle that you don't realise the the choices, the impact you had. Mm-hmm. until after you've watched it, which I thought was a really interesting um, interesting idea. Uh, we've seen since, we've seen quite a few, certainly indies have a, a, um, experimented with this kind of, like, use of live action in their video games. So I'm thinking things like Sam Barlow's um, Her Story, or Telling Lies, mm-hmm. or um, uh, Flavorworks' uh, uh, Erica, um, or pretty much anything by Deveki Studios or Wales Interactive. Like those are different, obviously, because they are entirely done in FMV, and they're kind of more the natural evolution of the of the FMV games back in the '90s. But I still I find it interesting that given how accessible TV or live action production is now to smaller studios. That largest studios haven't attempted this kind of quantum break style uh, weaving in of live action footage with their with their game story. Like, why do you think that is?
1: Hmm. Um, I well, it kind of goes back to an earlier point I made about episodic thinking, and I think therein lies part of the problem. At least, um, I I think it's uh, it's a kind of um, a tough proposition where you have. Fundamentally, that is supposed to be an interactive experience, but then you have uh, long stretches of passive moments basically and as you said, like when you even watch those episodes, it didn't feel like even though we we took choices into account that you made on the game side like you know and, and we spoke about like the game is about the heroes and the, the show is about the villains and so so there was this kind of an interesting um, kind of uh, uh, like asymmetric thinking there a bit, and like we're looking at different perspectives and, and so on. Um, so I, I think it's, it's again, of, of the, the uh, expectation that people have of the experience and, and I think people feel a bit hesitant uh, looking at this as a package, like am I buying a game or am I buying a TV show? And, and then there's this nervousness that might exist that it's going to be like a, a, a worse world of both when we try to kind of combine them that there are like um these uh, corners that we cut and and you know had to simplify and so on which which to me definitely wasn't the case and so so and i i think it's it's like people consumers you know or audiences they want experiences that they can grasp and understand and relate to and I, I i think when they look at products like that where it's like clearly two different styles of entertainment in, in one package they they hesitate and, and then it's, it's a bit too different and also i think where we failed in in a way was that having that sense of better sense of connection between the tv show and the game as well like somehow i don't know visualizing the the impacts that you had on the other side so that you can see the sh- show and so on and, and and figuring all of that stuff was was hard and complicated because these were like two different productions entirely uh the tv show was produced by other people and and so on. Of course, we kind of worked with them and then had a lot of kind of syncs and connection points and the game was produced within the studio. So creating those kind of connection points was was really uh, a kind of a complicated and, and tough and so on and didn't give us a lot of kind of a, uh, room to maneuver in, in many ways. So I, I think these kind of uh, elements uh, kind of led to a place where I think a lot of people hesitated with with the product that uh, was in front of them at the end of the day. And and I do feel a bit, uh, I don't want to say like that, that, a bit unfairly, uh, maybe. Uh, I, I think they, I, I read that there were people who were surprised, for instance, that there's action in, in Quantum Break, there's shooting in Quantum Break. The, and uh, I never surprised to hear that they are surprised and, and so on. So I, I think the overall setup probably led People thinking in in a very specific way, and that just demonstrates to me the the problem of you know what is the product. When people see live TV shows, they I think almost automatically expect that well, there's not going to be a like a like a big action gameplay component there at all, or it's going to be some kind of a adventure type of thing, and so on, uh, which wasn't the case. So. Yeah, I think it's like a perception problem mostly. Mm.
0: I I certainly think as well. Like there's this, and I don't know if this is what you were going for at the time, but there is this this ongoing um, discussion of how we get TV audiences into games. Like that's a conversation Mm. I've had with developers before. How do you get TV audiences into games? And again, going back to those episodic games we were talking about, that's been seen as a way of doing that. I remember um, interviewing the people who did uh, the, the Planet of the Apes game, Planet of the Apes Lost Frontier, and the idea was, right, we're going to make a game that people who like watching the movies will enjoy playing because they can just sit and they can use their smartphone as a controller so it's not, it's not scary, you don't have to, like, press loads of buttons. And I don't think that took off. And, like, I don't think... There is definitely this disconnect between... Mm. A, a purely tv consumer and a purely games consumer like and the the, the experiences are too different and I, I i admire and i love the fact that quantum break tried to to marry that together like i i, I debated with you know at the time you're know, trying to get maybe my wife to sit and play it's like, right i'll sit and do the action bits and you can kind of help me make decisions and then we can watch the tv bit together and it's like i don't think that would quite work but i loved that you tried i loved it you know what i mean like
1: i uh, know exactly what you mean and i'm happy also that we tried i'm proud of what we managed to pull off and and i think it's a very unique product in in many ways i don't think there's anything quite like it really and and so uh and it definitely was interesting and and as a creative person you want to be able to work on things that are kind of uh, trying out things that haven't really been tried out in that kind of way before. I don't mean that they wouldn't have been games with similar kind of ideas, but the extent that we kind of took it was definitely interesting and so on. But yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, I and again, it's, it's something that I do believe, it's just, you know, there are different forms of entertainment and, um, and people uh kind of experience them for different reasons i there's a mood that i have when i go and play games there's a mood that i have when i go and watch you know movies or or tv shows or read a book and so i have this kind of like a internal uh kind of a desire to experience something very specific and and when you try to marry many of these elements together you're i think you're always taking a bit of a risk there
0: Last game, then fifth game is Control, released in 2019 for Xbox One, PS4, PC, heading to PlayStation Five, Xbox Series X/S, and uh, Amazon Luna. Developed by Remedy Entertainment, published by 505 Games. Um, this is a big one, um, and here is the bit where I confess that shamefully, I still have not played this, but I absolutely love the look of it, and I hear so so many good things. Um, the first kind of point I want to talk about this for you is like just the context for the company because. So we, we've kind of hinted at this throughout the show, but like Quantum Break was owned by Microsoft, so you couldn't do a sequel. Alan Wake was owned by Microsoft, so you couldn't do a sequel. Max Payne was sold to um, a rock star, so you couldn't do a sequel. Here you are finally with an IP for the first time in what is the best part of the year, like more than a decade, that you can make a sequel to if you want. Um, why is it important? Not just Not just for Remedy... But I, I feel like it's becoming more important like in, in, in the last couple of years for developers to own their own IP, to own their original IP rather than selling to publishers. Is that, is that fair to say?
1: Um, it's really hard to speak on behalf of other studios really out there, but I personally believe that there's a huge amount of value in that. And I think when you look out at games being produced, there's a lot of sequels out there. And which is understandable, but there's also, I think, um, that uh, uh, kind of um, that games are kind of collapsing in very kind of specific genres and so on. There's always outliers and, and exceptions, of course, and and this and I think you as an independent studio, your IPs are basically what establish who you are. That's that's the kind of real value that you have, and through that you can stand out, you can be different compared to others, and and through that kind of find your, you know, place in the pond, if if you know what I mean. And um so that is the kind of core reason in my eyes why holding on to the IPs is valuable and, and important. And um because at the end of the day, they are the things that really define who you are and it's it's your kind of a way of standing apart from from others uh, of course there's a huge burden of making that ip successful and then making a new ip successful is so so hard uh even looking at these massive studios out there like ubisoft and, and looking at like uh watchdogs for instance and so on like there's definitely you can see how they're kind of uh, trying to find their way with the ip trying different things out multiple different games and so on and and they committed to the idea immediately that this is not going to be just a one off this is going to be a franchise and, and we're going to kind of keep releasing games on it and, and kind of see what's the what's the kind of a right right direction for this franchise and so on trying different things out which is cool like you know as a studio I should do that uh, so, so it's always like a, like a kind of a big choice and a, and a kind of a big investment and and so on. And Through that, uh, if you're ready to invest in it and and kind of create sequels and and kind of establish a brand a franchise, that's that's when when you can kind of really look at yourself and say that okay, now we're actually succeeding in something and and making a first first game of a new IP kind of a punch through. It's it's super hard.
0: Well, let's dive into that. Like as you say, it's like it's never it's never been easy to launch a new IP, but it does feel like particularly nowadays, um, when you know the game industry is, is dominated by so so many kind of established IPs, like particularly from the AAA. But then obviously you've got like you know there's a much larger indie scene kind of fighting from the bottom. Mm-hmm. And you guys are very much kind of aiming for AAA space or certainly that high end. Um, you know, Quantum Break, Alan Wake, they were both. Um, they were both new IP and they performed reasonably well, but clearly not well enough for Microsoft to warrant a sequel. Um, Mm. So when you're creating a new, a new IP, you are, as you say, you're creating something that you hope can become a franchise, not because you want to keep making the same game over and over again, but because you need that value in the studio, you need that, that, that hook that will bring people back that will keep Mm. you guys going. Um, what the, let's compare it to both Alan Wake and Quantum Break. Like, what is is difficult about launching an IP into tw- a new IP in twenty nineteen or twenty twenty? Like now, compared to three years ago, ten years ago, etc.
1: Um, I I think it's um, it's let's be honest, it's it's a hit driven business, and and there's a limit to how many people like how many games people buy a year, and and they choose the games that they want to buy very, very carefully, which is understandable, it's their money, and, and they want to be sure that how they uh, invest that money, that there's a sense of, you know, I talked earlier about the sense of value proposition that you get with that. And and it, it kind of um, is, is a kind of a complicated thing to tackle because you want to be able to uh, kind of, uh, come across as look at this new game and, and it's valuable. There, there's a lot of things that you can do within this world and so on. But if people have never experienced it before, it's such a tough sell. It's it's like um because I, I think people tend to quite rightly uh sometimes uh play it you know somewhat safer that I'll I'll buy this product that is like the third iteration, I loved it the last time, I will love it this time. Right, like there's this sense of um, uh, kind of uh, the one, wanting to minimize the hurdle of going through something as as a complicated thing as a game. Like you you can read a book and, and watch a TV show for 15 minutes and not, like say like do you like it or not? But games is more complicated. You have to actually spend time in them and and really see like how it kind of uh, clicks and so on. And then you invest a lot of your this kind of uh, your emotional. Bandwidth into that your time and and so on and and then it 's such a disappointment if through that investment and you go through it, and you feel like actually this wasn 't that good of a game so so it 's understandable that people hesitate within that moment, and then when you come up with the new i p and look at the shelf and you look at all these different cool products out there that have been established in in the in the kind of the last uh, you know three to seven years and and so on and and then kind of become the product that people are ready to pick besides the old and known things it's 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 very very hard and and that's the risk you always take with the new ip and and the thinking from my side is that and again it's it's like i think it's like building a house uh and you you have to establish like a foundation like here's the experience and then you look into and you hope that it does well enough, so that you know you have you have a reason to at least you know from a financial perspective to see that the, we should build a sequel and, and so on. That there's something to build on top of, even though it's not immediately a massive financial success. So you of course need to you need to have enough success so that it's a kind of viable idea. And. And then you're ready to kind of build on top of that and so on. And, uh, and many, many successes, I, I think, have been built like that. It's, it's kind of rare when you look at these massive IPs today, uh, like let's say owned by uh, Ubisoft or you know, EA and so on, they they started simple and 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 small and weren't necessarily initially a massive success, but they kept added, tried different things out, and through a number of releases, they kind of uh, suddenly found their kind of uh, style and direction that made things click, and and so on, and and with that comes you know the larger audiences. So it, it is a journey, which which I think you have to commit to. Uh, already before you even started to work on the first game, that what is the continuity of the experience that we are going to create? It's not just about this first product. It's going to be also about product number two and three after that as well. So as a studio, I, I think we we have to start link, thinking like that. And and we are actually thinking like that. With every product that we actually release, be it Alan Wake, On Break, we've always looked at them as... Ah, uh, kind of an entry point into a new universe, basically, that we could you know continue from there in in different shapes and forms and and sometimes maybe in a kind of a more radical way or or more conventional way and so on. but it's always we've always had that thinking there. Uh, people, I think, I think we're seen in, a, in an interesting light because we always done a new IP and and I, quite rightly, I mean, some people think that it's because we want it to be like that, but it's not really the case where we would love doing new IPs, don't get me wrong, but I don't think we would mind doing a sequel either and uh, and so on. Uh, so, so there's no like religious kind of uh, attitude from our side regarding any of that. Um, what what is the difference in the in kind of today and, and three years from now? I, I think it's, it is that kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, the the experiences and IPs that already exist out there are so massive they are so big. Uh, you buy a new Assassin's Creed game. You're going to play that game for months. So you could to play it for months, and so on. you don't even need any other games out there. So, so it is in a way like a like a, a competition in many ways of the players' time that that different studios have, and 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 that's getting harder and harder every year. And and the games are becoming bigger and bigger, um, and and that's definitely, I think, uh, uh, let's say uh, a new interesting challenge for a smaller studio like us
0: so basically control two confirmed yes (laughs) no comments on that (laughs) didn't think so that's fine um it's interesting as well like control because it's it's an end of generation game and Mm. particularly this past current past slash current generation i have to remember this episode is coming out after (laughs) The launch of uh, Xbox Series X and PlayStation Five on the Xbox One and PS4 generation, we saw a lot of remakes, a lot of definitive editions, remasters, and so forth. Mm. So late generation, you know, previous generations, much much older generations. If you came out late in the um, in the cycle, um, that's it. Your game, your game had to kind of had to be picked up, or that was it. Like I was kind of lost forever. And there were some great games you just never picked up because they were bought at the tail end of the cycle. Um, and, and they just they just didn't have the audience because people knew a new console was coming mm. out, so they saved up for those. This past generation, we've had um, a lot of remasters and remakes, like I've said, um, yeah, definitive editions. Control is an interesting one in that like so many titles um, from the end of this cycle, it's going to be on both. It's going to be on both um, platforms. You know, Battlefield 4, which we talked about earlier, was on both platforms. Mm. But this time around, there's this kind of expectation, um, or it feels like this expectation that's been set up partly partly by Microsoft and their smart delivery, that if you owned it on this generation, you should get it on the next one. There's a lot of kind of free upgrades going on. Um, mm. There's a lot of, uh, yeah, uh, it 's almost becoming the standard that right, so if you already own a game on this generation, you get the next generation for free, or at least you need to get the upgrade for free and control is a rare exception in that I believe the um it, 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 you only get the cross platform if you buy the ultimate edition
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, now i 'm going to guess that you're not directly connect connected to that um, that decision, but um I guess I'll go with your thoughts on that expectation because that that to me I can see why consumers are getting upset about this. Like, right, I've invested mm. in all these games. I want to bring yeah. them onto the next platform. And we are rapidly reaching the point where games as an entertainment medium, it is daft that there is this hard stop, particularly on consoles, there's this hard mm. stop. Every five to seven years, they're like, right, all those things you had, they don't work anymore. Buy the new ones. Mm. Like, that doesn't work with your DVDs, Blu-rays, films, nothing. Like, there is just no equivalent like of that in other forms of entertainment. Mm. Um, but equally you yeah, if i if I had the you know the the hardback version of a, of control if it were a book for example i wouldn 't then expect a free paperback copy. <laughs> I would expect to have to buy the paperback, so I can see both sides of the argument i 'm just intrigued sure. to see your your take on it
1: yeah first off, I want to say I think it's fantastic that you know backwards compatibility is like a default thing now with with these generations, and that wasn 't definitely the case in the previous generation, so I think that 's a welcome thing i to me. Um I ideally as as a creator, I mean, technology kind of serves a huge point. I love it when there are no new features and new consoles and the power that you get to use, you can create more impressive experience. And that's all fantastic. But I do want to kind of reach a place regarding technology and games where this is starting to become like common like you know i can buy a game for ps4 and of course i can play that game on ps5 and so on like that's like a given and and i like that it's it's more close to mobile games and so on and i hope that the console environment becomes like that as well it's better for the consumers and it's better i think for the developers as well now having said that um it is you know I mean you can play control uh on p s five if you bought the p s four version uh and and that's kind of uh, uh something that works quite easily and so on and there's not a huge struggle in that but then when you kind of go to the business side and so on, there is you know work that is put into, when when you kind of need to look at the platform itself and, and kind of look at ways of utilizing that power in the in the kind of right way and in the kind of right context and so on, that is new work that, you know, has to be done. That doesn't come for free for you to be able to really go with 4K and, and you know, 60 FPS and do all of those things. They don't automatically come. It requires time, uh, coding effort, uh, and And kind of a complex um kind of adjustments and and kind of uh rewritings of certain pieces of code and so on that can take months by a by a large team, so it is something that takes uh kind of a an effort and and time and and in other words it costs money to us uh, and and so on and that definitely kind of factors in and as you said like i i'm not part of the uh kind of uh let's say the larger decision making on this, but but when you look at it from a business perspective, it, it is a factor, definitely, and, and and which I think makes sense. On the other hand, I, I do definitely understand the the frustration, and I, I do understand the expectations that people have regarding how um, they uh, kind of uh, see different products and so on, and, uh, and I, I can understand all of that as well. But Having said that, it's, it's a complicated uh, kind of uh, field, uh, technologically, production-wise, and so on. And, I, and, and things that you, as necessarily as a consumer, uh, expect to take a lot of effort, can take. And it's something that we rarely talk about it because it's not necessarily something that's meaningful and, and valuable to discuss, but, but that definitely factors into it uh, quite a degree.
0: Mikael thank you so much for your time today Uh, I've taken up a lot of your time Um, that was really interesting really interesting look Um, where can we find a little bit more about you are you you on Twitter so people can kind of get your hot takes uh, on on an up to date basis
1: (laughs) yeah you can find me at uh, Twitter at Mikael Kasurinen uh, written together like that Uh, yeah my my Finnish name is a bit problematic but hopefully you might be able to google me and and maybe maybe find a a link there (laughs) Uh, thank you, but it has been wonderful.
0: Marvellous. And we are going to be back on Monday with your regular news show. Uh, if you uh, enjoyed this, then feel free to scroll back through the feed and find other episodes of Five Games of and the Game Developers Playlist, our other spin off series. Uh, that's all we've got time for. We'll be back next month with another prominent industry person and five games from their career. Until then, you can get more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz.